You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Well, we have a few scripture passages to read together this afternoon in connection with a sermon connected to Article 7 of the Canons of Dort. Let us start our scripture reading with the Gospel according to John, chapter 6, the verses 35 to 40. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And we turn to Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28 and ending at verse 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And then we turn next to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, where once again the Apostle Paul writes, under the guidance of the Spirit, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And finally, to Thessalonians 2, 13, 14, and 15, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, summer arrives, I know it's not here yet, But imagine summer arrives, you go to the beach, 
The sand is deep and enticing, and you're a child. So what do you do? You pull out a shovel, and you dig, dig, and dig some more. Sometimes you dig wide, often you dig deep, and when you do that, you often find things. Isn't that true, kids? You find crabs, coins, other kind of stuff. Yes, and sometimes, not often, but sometimes you find something neat, shiny, and valuable. And it makes all the digging worthwhile. Well, in some respects, the opening chapter of the Canons of Dort is like that. A few weeks ago, we started our digging by looking at mankind generally, but then mankind in sin. And as we did so, we were greatly surprised by the love of God as displayed in the sending of His one and only begotten Son. And thereafter, we were pleased to hear that God sends out official announcers called heralds to tell people about His Son's coming. Our digging was yielding pleasant results. But then it hit a snag. For some people embrace the message of the heralds, the great news, with faith. Others shrugged it off and dismissed it. And why? Well, the shruggers did so because they hardened their hearts and refused to bend their wills. The embracers, on the other hand, received it with joy and faith. And God, we were reminded, enabled them to do so. But still the digging didn't stop. It went on and somehow it stumbled on to a mind-boggling and mysterious truth. And it was a truth all about God. It was all about His decree. About a mysterious decision taken in eternity. All about leaving and electing. Now that got our attention, and so today we dig, we need to dig, a little harder yet, and a little deeper still. We need to dig into Article 7 of the Canons of Dort. And beloved, when we do that, we hit on something, indeed we strike pay dirt, we find a treasure chest. And what is in it? What does that chest contain? Well, in it there is more, much more, about election. And indeed it all calls for a closer look and a more careful examination. Let's read together Article 7, Canons of Dort. And there we read and there we confess election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world out of the whole human race, which had fallen by its own fault out of its original integrity and to sin and perdition, 
God has, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his will, out of mere grace, chosen in Christ to salvation. A definite number of specific persons, neither better nor more worthy than others, but involved together with them in a common misery. He has also from eternity appointed Christ to be the mediator and head of all the elect and the foundation of salvation. And thus he decreed to give to Christ those who were to be saved and effectually to call and draw them into his communion through his word and spirit. He decreed to give them true faith in him, to justify them, to sanctify them, and having powerfully kept them in the fellowship of his Son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy and the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. As it is written, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And elsewhere those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. I preached to you this afternoon on the following theme, chosen in Christ or the electing work of the triune God. And we're going to speak about chosen by the Father, drawn by the Spirit, saved by the Son. Well, beloved, a short moment ago I called election a treasure. However, I realize that many unbelievers mock this treasure and that there are also many believers who don't quite know what to do with it. And indeed, as far as any number of believers are concerned, here is a treasure between quotation marks. Or here is a treasure that they wish they had never, ever discovered. It makes them very uneasy. And why is that? Well, because it raises so many questions in their minds. And in addition, a lot of those questions defy easy answers. And also some of those answers confront us with truths and realities that we would rather not think about or have to face. And the result is, beloved, that some believers close their minds at this point and refuse to go any further. But is that right? Is it not so that if God has revealed something in His holy word, we as believers need to read it, believe it, study it, and strive to understand it? And is it not so, as the scripture says, that the revealed things belong to us and to our children? And is it not our calling to explore the whole counsel of God and not simply to pick and choose our way through it or around it? And surely, beloved, that applies to the doctrine of election as well. We need to acknowledge it and believe it. We need to deal with it and work with it. 
I'm not saying that we need to become obsessed by it. There is a Reformed Church Federation that is rather obsessed by it. But I'm not saying we should go down that particular road. But beloved, we do need to admit that God reveals it. And if God reveals it, we need to believe it and confess it. And if you ask why, well, for one thing, because this is a teaching that you find everywhere in the Scriptures. You cannot read the Old Testament properly and escape the fact that God repeatedly calls His people His chosen people. Read Deuteronomy 4, 7, 9. Read the Psalms. Read the prophets. Israel is the creation of the electing God. Yes, the New Testament, Israel is no different. A few moments ago we read together those passages from John and Romans, Ephesians, Second Thessalonians. We could have read a lot more passages, but to suffice it to say, the language of election fills the entire Scriptures. It's everywhere. It underlies everything. It emerges so often. So what is it? What is election? Well, I would say to you that here the Canons of Dort perform a real service for what they do is they take so many different Scripture passages together and they synthesize them into one particular definition. It's a definition that we read together a few moments ago in the first part of Article 7. It's long. It's involved. It also needs to be broken down into parts. And if you look at that definition closely, you see a number of things. First of all, you see that this is something that God the Father does. Of course, as we shall see, all three persons of the triune God are involved in it, but it is commonly said to start with God the Father. Read the words of the Lord Jesus as recorded in John's Gospel, and, and you cannot escape the impression, not only in chapter 6, but also in subsequent chapters, that the Son is doing the will of the Father. And it is the Father who has given him certain people, and it is his task to seek them and find them, to hold on to them, and as he says, to give them in the end eternal life. And furthermore, it says in this definition that this is an ancient task. Paul in Ephesians 1 tells us that God chose these people before the creation of the world. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, he uses the expression from the beginning. In other words, before the world was made, before mankind existed, before time began, before history started, God the Father was busy. He was choosing, electing, or selecting 
a people for himself. Yes, and because he is God, this is no frivolous work. Our God never does anything thoughtlessly or carelessly. No, his wisdom is perfect. His understanding is complete. His knowledge is supreme. And that's why the canons speak about the unchangeable purpose of God. What God decides and what God decrees never needs second thought or later revision. What God does is never subject to recall. His work is perfect. And His purposes stand forever. But yet, beloved, it is a purpose very much connected to man. God is the subject, man is the object here. But then realize well that it is fallen mankind that is the object. The same epistle that gives us Romans 8, that magnificent chapter, begins by reminding us way back in chapter 3, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul says there is no perfect Jew in the world and there is no perfect Gentile either. And therefore the canons of Dora describe the human race as having fallen by its own fault out of its original integrity into sin and perdition. So, beloved, election has everything to do with the human race. Fallen, sinful human race. But nevertheless, this God of ours does not elect this whole human race of ours, he makes a choice. On what is that choice of our God? On what is it based? Well, very simply, it's based on the fact that he is God, that he is sovereign, that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and of everything that exists. And mankind hates to hear that kind of stuff. In a world in which everything seems to come down to man, his genes, his breeding, his social standing, his education, his cunning, his effort, it's hard to admit that there is a God who is absolutely sovereign and omnipotent. And yet... He is. As Paul says in Romans 9, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me thus? You see, it's the Almighty Father who chooses. And it's he who chooses for himself a people. Already before the world began, he selected those who would be his. 
The canon summarizing the scriptures refer to a definite number of specific people. Somehow God the Father knows those were His before time. And in time, He makes them His own. He knows all of His children by name. He knows them and He saves them. And if you think of it, that's an awesome thought. But who are they? Who are these people whom God elects? Are they the better specimens of humanity? Are they the respectable, the educated, the cultured? Are they the more deserving? That's the almost automatic conclusion that we come to and that we like to work with. And yet it's wrong. The canons speak about a definite number of specific persons, neither better nor more worthy than others, but involved together with them in a common misery. And they also mention something else, namely that this is all out of mere grace. And that's, of course, the language of Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. You know, a colleague of mine once compared election to a huge barrel filled with apples. And he says it's as if God approaches this barrel, reaches in, and gets hold of some of the apples. And he then selects them and chooses some of them. Interesting analogy. But still, he should have added something to it. He should have added that all of the apples in the barrel were equally rotten and blemished. If you go to a fruit stand, you pick the best fruit. You leave all the blemish stuff behind. Well, beloved, God doesn't have that option. All the fruit is unfit. All the apples are decaying. All the oranges are stinking. But yet he chose some. He chose them in spite of themselves. He chose them out of grace alone. No apple can boast. No orange can congratulate itself. It's all unmerited, undeserved, unearned. It's all grace and more grace. And what that means, beloved, in short, is that we who truly believe must give all the credit to God. Yes, and as baby Caden grows up and embraces the promises of God, his 
parents and he as well must give credit where credit is due. Were it not for the choosing of God the Father, His mysterious before time, sovereign, gracious choosing. Scripture says there would be no salvation and there would be no people of God. But then, beloved, if this treasure we discovered has everything to do with God the Father and His choosing, it also has everything to do with the Holy Spirit and His drawing. You'll notice the canons in Article 7 go on to say that God the Father decreed effectually to call and draw them into His communion through His Word and Spirit. And what that means is that God the Father does more than simply choose a people to salvation. He also uses the Holy Spirit and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, as instruments to turn this choosing into reality. And in that connection, once again, the Gospel of John is very helpful here. In it, the Lord Jesus says, the Spirit is life. And he adds the words, I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And later on in chapter 14, he speaks about the coming of the spirit of truth. The spirit who will lead God's people into the truth and will remind them constantly of Jesus. And later on in chapter 16, he refers to the Spirit again, calling him the counselor who will come to God's people and who will fill them and guide them into all the truth. Oh, and think also of what we read in 2 Thessalonians 2. God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And through belief in the truth. Surely, beloved, it's clear here that the Apostle Paul sees the Spirit as the agent and the means of our salvation. He's the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who works faith in the hearts of God's children. The Spirit is paramount and essential if we are to be drawn out of this world and into the communion of the Father. And so that has implications too. Why do we believe that our children should be taught to pray? at the earliest possible age. And why do we take the time and make the effort as father and mother to read the Bible to our children even when they cannot read themselves as yet? And why do we urge our children as they mature to read the Scriptures personally, to meditate upon them, and to apply their teaching to their lives? And why do we send our children to Christian day schools at considerable expense and sacrifice even? Is the answer not that we want to do everything possible to expose them to the Holy Spirit 
and to the Word of the Spirit. Beloved, no one comes to face without the Spirit and the Word. No one can consider himself or herself to be an elect child of God unless their life is filled with the Spirit, is being transformed by the Spirit, and is being daily guided by the Word of the Spirit. You might say, in a sense, it's all about exposure. Right exposure. Too many parents expose or allow their children to be exposed to the wrong things. Too much exposure to McDonald's has proven to be bad health-wise. And too much exposure to television sitcoms and computer games and MSN is a bad thing morally. And too much exposure to unbelieving friends is not always a good thing faith-wise either. On the other hand, the right kind of exposure can be a source of rich and eternal blessing. Expose yourself to the Spirit, to His person, to His power, to His fruits. Expose yourself to the Word of the Spirit, to its light and its truth. Pray for the Spirit to fill you and to draw you and to renew you and finally to glorify you. And so, beloved, this treasure that we're speaking about this afternoon has everything to do with God the Father and His choosing, and God the Spirit and His drawing. But what about God the Son? Where does He come in? What role does He play? Again, I think the canons are somewhat helpful here when they say that Christ is the mediator and the head of the elect. Let's consider first that expression, the head of the elect. What does it mean? But it means that all whom God the Father chooses really come to belong to Christ. All the elect are His. They're all given to Him. He is their King, their Ruler, their Lord. You know, in John 6, the Lord Jesus speaks repeatedly about those whom the Father have given to Him. And they're His possession. They belong to Him in the words of Lord's Day 1, body and soul and life and death. And you know, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, much is made about the fact that together Christ And believers form one body. But then note that in this body they are the members and He is the head. Christ, you see, leads and guides and commands the elect. He's their head. And the canons say he's also their mediator. That means he's their go-between, he's their referee, he's the person in the middle. He brings the parties at odds back together again. 
Christ is the mediator who saves us and raises us up at the last day. John 6. Christ is the mediator whose likeness we come to share. Romans 8. Christ is the mediator through whom we are adopted and become the sons of God. Ephesians 1. Christ is the mediator who enables us one day to share in the glory. 2 Thessalonians 2. And in all of that, beloved, you can see that Christ is central And this whole teaching of election is the head and the mediator of all of God's people. And the canons say that we are chosen in Christ. It's in Him. It's never outside of Him. It's never beside Him. It's never apart from Him. No, it's always in Him. Election. It's always election in Christ. Yes, and that's something that you always, always need to keep in mind. One of the questions that surely comes to the fore whenever we deal with this particular doctrine is, how can I know whether or not I am an elect child of God? My catechism students ask me this. My older parishioners sometimes ask me it as well. Perhaps one day, Vincent and Melissa, Caden will ask you too. So what's the answer? Can we really know this? Is this not something that's beyond us to say, to allege, or to confess? Isn't this where uncertainty and a big question mark creeps into the Christian life? No, not at all, beloved. But the answer to this is to be found in another question, namely, who is Christ to you? What is Christ to you? And if your answer is, He is my Savior and my Lord, He is my God and my King, then you belong to the elect of God. Our election, beloved, is always in Christ. Christ is the key. The Apostle Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. If your hope your confidence, your love, your faith is in Christ. It will never put you to shame. The answer, beloved, to all doubt and uncertainty is Christ. 
And indeed, I might add, and we're going to see that in subsequent weeks as well, the Lord willing, that the answer to so many of the questions that come up in connection with this doctrine, the answer is Christ. Look to Him, believe in Him, live out of Him, and you will, in the words of Peter, be making your calling and election sure. And as the Lord Jesus says so beautifully and so comfortingly at the end of of John chapter 6, verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.